Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. It's the podcast that answers your questions, tells you all about French ingredients and dishes, and you'll also get to know all about important French chefs and cooks. Fabulously Delicious aims to explain all there is to know about French food. But that's not all. You also get to know the guests who are the experts and lovers of French cuisine. They live both here in France like me and around the world. Fabulously Delicious is about the food we eat, cook with, and the people that make it. I'm your host on Fabulously Delicious, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Enchanté. As an Australian living in rural France, my life is all about cooking, eating, and living life the French way. Through Fabulously Delicious, you can dream of or even make your own steps to doing the same. Check me out on Instagram if you like, Andrew Pryor Fabulously, for French life inspiration. But also, go to YouTube for cooking and travelling tips at youtube.com forward slash Andrew Pryor. And of course, subscribe to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Today on Fabulously Delicious, we are chatting with someone that has made a life in Paris all about wine, and in particular, today's subject, the vineyards of Paris. Having lived for a year around the corner from the famous vineyard of Montmartre, I had no idea that there was other vineyards of Paris and of their importance to French wine throughout history until I spoke to our guest today. So, sit back, turn the volume up. If you're not driving, pour yourself a glass of wine, break a baguette, add a bit of saucisson, some cheese, and enjoy today's episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast, Vineyards of Paris with Jeffrey Finch. Jeffrey Finch, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Before we talk all things Paris vineyards, I wanted the audience to get to know you a little bit better. You're not actually French, are you? You're in fact Canadian, is that right? Well, I am also French, although um, I would be hard-pressed to actually you know, be identified as such, given the fact that I'm really not French at all. But I mean, I, mean, I do have the nationality. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, from the west coast of Canada. Um, I've been living in France since uh, 1983, which is 40 years now. You must have been five when you came over. Exactly. <laughs> in Canada, you lived in Victoria. For those that haven't been there, because I haven't been there, what's Victoria like? I don't know. And it's Victoria, BC, is that yeah. correct? What's uh, the BC stand for? British Columbia. There are there are several provinces in in Canada, and British Columbia is the most is the westernmost province. Uh, Victoria is the capital of British Columbia, and it's on an island called Vancouver Island which is not to be confused with the city of Vancouver, which is on the mainland. Uh, but the city of Victoria is um, likes to pretend that it's a little bit of old England and in the, from a tourist perspective, sells itself as such. It was like one of the last bastions of the British Empire. And hence, it's, um, it's a very, it's, it has a, a strong English community. My, my great-great-grandparents and my grandparents and so on all came from England. So there's a, a link there that's very strong. But it's a beautiful part of the world. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the world that I can think of, quite honestly. 
Victoria is an incredibly charming town with uh, beaches. Okay, now when you say beaches, because I'm Australian and all of our beaches are, you know, vast, glorious and full of sand. And then I went to the UK just recently and had my first experience of a beach in the UK, which was not vast and did not have, well, it was, the, it was gloomy weather, it was grey, it was winter, or not winter, autumn. Uh, but there was no sand, there was pebbles. Is that the same in British no, Victor no, well, Victoria? Victoria? Victoria has a variety of beaches. There are rocky beaches, there are sandy beaches, there are pebbly beaches. There's some really lovely sandy beaches, actually. Um, the ones that we grew up with and, and sort of spent our time in, mostly, uh, were sandy beaches. And But the only catch there is, I mean, there may be some beautiful sandy beaches, but the water's a bit chilly. I mean, it doesn't get really very warm um, you know, even in summer, but you know, you venture in and it's, it's, it's invigorating. It's supposed to be very good for you, isn't it? Swimming yeah. in the cold I mean, water. I was there last, uh, not, well, not, uh, not last winter. Was it last winter? I forget. Anyway, the winter before this one, perhaps, uh, the, before the last one and went swimming in December, um, uh, because it's really not much cooler, uh, then than it is in the summer. So, other than the fact that you don't have the, the hot sun uh, to warm you after. In Victoria, you went to university there. What did you study? I studied English literature and classics, but with a little bit of other things thrown in. I spent a lot of time um, in the uh, philosophy department as well, just uh, sitting in on lectures because I was interested in uh, Eastern religions. I was interested in, I took courses in, in logic, which was a bizarre thing to do, but it was kind of interesting. Some people say that would be logical. Yeah, could be, might be considered that. I think, you know, it, all made, it made great sense to me while I was listening and attending the lectures, but then when I was required to actually reproduce those ideas, it, it wasn't that easy. Um, but I also studied uh, history of art and uh, Worked for the um, Cine Center, which is a there's a, a film, uh, there's a theater in, at the university, and I was a projectionist there, which was really fun because I got to um, watch thousands of films. So when you're studying English and the classics at university, it leads me to ask: so what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> I had no intention of ever becoming anything. My, my ambition at, at university was really just to, it was an opportunity to read. I, I really just wanted to go to university so I could read, which is what I, was, which is what I did. I spent most of my time in, in studying literature, uh, reading Shakespeare, which was really fun. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, neither of those things are particularly useful outside of academia. Uh, I mean, not directly useful. I think um, studying literature is always um, advantageous for, you know, if you're going to be working in communications of any kind or, or um, I suppose, press or whatever. But, uh, I mean, I work also as a translator, and so that's probably been a good thing. But, I mean, it's also because I just have a, passionate, a passion for books. I like to read. So, voila. How did you get into the wine industry? I was always fond of, well, first of all, as we were growing up, uh, my mother loved to cook and she loved to have dinner parties. And we had friends, family friends would come and bring wine. And as children, we were invited to smell and taste uh, wines. And I was intrigued because they were sometimes very 
uh, they were lovely. They could be very, very um, appealing at many levels. And I was kind of drawn to, then I, I began to recognize that there was a culture um, that was related to wine that I, I was also drawn to because it was, it seemed to me to be a, comp- I mean, it was, I was drawn to the table, the arts of the table, I suppose. And wine was a complement to that. And uh, learning about food and and wine as a companion. And then basically I, I mean, I developed an appetite for for wines over, I mean, beers, I liked beer as well, but it was, and I made beer actually when I was 15, uh, but I, I didn't really find it anywhere near as appealing as, as, uh, as wine. And so it just sort of, it, and then when I first came to Europe, um, I hadn't really focused on the idea that, I mean, I wasn't really convinced that wine um, had the, the qualities that were often ascribed to it because it's, it struck me that much of that was exaggeration or hyperbole. And in fact, um, it wasn't until I was in my first trip to Europe, which was in 1976, when I had the opportunity of tasting a, a, a Chambord Musigny from the Côte d'Or of Burgundy. Uh, 1966 Chambord Musigny was 1976. So it was 10 years of age. It was perfect. And the wine was unbelievable. It just completely changed my perspective because the the aromas were so powerfully um, evocative, but they were just seductive. My God, it was just so good. I can think back to that wine. I mean, I sort of made a pilgrimage to Chambon Musigny every year thereafter once I came back to France. I hadn't, you know, by I, I, to get to that point, I mean, well, I'm just jumping ahead now, but I had never really had um, any ambition to come and live in France. My original idea was to live in, it was to live in Greece, uh, as I said, because I studied classics, I was curious, interested in Greek culture. But um, yeah, things happened, and, and I actually met a Greek goddess on an island uh, who was studying architecture in Paris, and that's what brought, that's what brought me to France the second time round. Of course, it, it turned out she was a mere mortal once I got to know her a bit, um, and that that sent me. I was not at all interested in living in Paris. I was not inter- at all interested in, in being in the city. And hence, I, um, I went off. Actually, I found completely by chance uh, an invitation to work in a vineyard in the Côte de Castillon, which is uh, about 11 kilometers away from saint Emilion in the Bordeaux region. And uh, I wrote to, these, to the, the owners, and they wrote back with what they called their off-putting letter. And their off-putting letter was, in fact, uh, nothing but an invitation. It was really very exciting. And anyway, to, uh, to make a long story short, I went to work in that vineyard and ended up being there for altogether uh, a year. I spent eight months. I was sort of the, the longest um, uh, consistently residing uh, worker they ever had because – well, it was for me. It was like the it, it was a glorious combination of everything that I loved. Um, I do like working with my hands, and I do love wine. But there was also um, lots of bricolage, lots of you know uh, repairs and stuff to do, for which they didn't really have much competence. And so they, they found, and I was willing to to play at all kinds of different things. So the the, the variety of the work was fun, but also there was a social dimension to it, which was also very appealing because it was students primarily from uh, all over the world 
who came and it was a bit like not a kibbutz exactly, but that sort of thing where people come and work for a um, you know in exchange for room and board, and um, you're you know you were required to stay for at least two weeks because just the training of you know teaching people how to how to wash dishes, which by the way is not something you can you know you need to be shown. This was not uh, this is not washing dishes as you might imagine it normally. Because everything had to be um, done just in such and such a way because all the, the waste from the plates was, of course, fed to the pigs. But there was, a, you know, in addition to having 15 hectares of vines, this was a property that was 60 hectares, and they had a very large vegetable garden. They had, um, they had forest and fields and uh, potatoes and stuff, and they had um, sheep and pigs and ducks and geese and chickens. And um, so they're pretty much self-sufficient. And uh, despite all that, um, all those animals, it was pretty much vegetarian. Meat was served but once a week or for feasting and, feasting and flavoring. That was basically all it was. They were very much, and it was a very, it was an organic vineyard. That was another thing. It was an enormous appeal for me because I had understood at an early age, uh, I mean, I was an ecologist at a very early age and aware of uh, and the importance of not polluting the soil of the world. And, I mean, I've, I've gone much deeper into that question over the years, but at the time, um, it, was, it was a great, I mean, it was a pleasure. They, the, the, they were not actually making their own wine. It was a domaine that uh, sold their grapes to a cave cooperative, so they, were, so they were blended in with everyone else's production. So the fact that they were organic was um, itself... A bit of a, an anomaly for the rest, but um, it, it made it. I mean, it was a joyful experience in all, all of it. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, then please share it around with your friends, colleagues, and family. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Oh, and if you are on Apple, leave a review, a five-star one. Well, that would be great. Merci beaucoup. So working in a vineyard, is it a hard job? Well, it's, I mean, working in vines, with vines, is, is labor-intensive. It's all, as is, I think, all agricultural work. Um, because sometimes, well, it's sometimes repetitive. Um, and, of course, people mostly think of vineyard work as picking grapes. That, of course, only happens once a year and for a period of a couple of weeks. Uh, the rest of the year, there's a lot to do um, to maintain the vines. And uh, when you're working organically or biodynamically, there's, it's more labor-intensive because there's less machine work and more hand work, you could say. And did you learn the process there of uh, winemaking? Well, we actually, we weren't actually, because the grapes were being sold to a cave cooperative, a... Uh, cooperative uh, we weren't making wine although the year that I was there one of the uh, workers that was working with us uh, became a very good friend whose name was Jeffrey as well uh, Jeffrey Stambor who is a who for years has been the uh, he was the winemaker for Bolio vineyards in Napa Valley in California which is one of the most prestigious and best-known vineyards of California um, at the time, he had just graduated from UC Davis, and um, you know, 
we decided to there were there were uh, ten rows of Sauvignon Blanc of white white grapes, and we decided normally there was a, a tradition with this vineyard <clears throat> to do um, what they described as a naked wine stomp, which in fact which was in fact a naked wine stomp, and um, that was really really fun. But we Jeffrey and I decided we would actually make wine because uh, the wines that had been made in previous years were pretty awful. We tried to revive the equipment that they had, which was was not at all up to scruff. But anyway, it was fun. We did make some wine. It was it was drinkable. It was not great by any means, but yeah, uh, it was it was a good experience from the you know from all perspectives in terms of actually the science of making wine as well. Have you done any professional training in regards to um, wine and winemaking, etc.? Um, not exactly. I've been associated with a lot of. Um, I mean, I've done various things with you know over the years with different vineyards, but never really being, never actually being uh, you know, in a professional professional capacity. My association with wine has been pretty much on the tourist tourism side taking people on tours of France to explore and discover what what they what what wines are and it, that has been an, I mean it's an incredible uh, there's an incredible learning curve there as you discover over years I mean, there's been a lot of development a lot of trend, a lot of change evolution you could say in the in winemaking and happily um, the move in recent years has been towards you know natural and, and organic and biodynamic wines um, even though those remain still very much uh, the minority but yeah so there's been I mean it's the, the best way to learn I think uh, about wine is to visit vineyards and then the opportunity of actually working with vineyards I mean uh, working in the cellar or working you know um, in the vines themselves is um, the best education. I mean, I mean, in terms of actually doing things professionally, there's, there's, there tends to be a lot of emphasis in France on doing things with getting a piece of paper for it. But frankly, I don't think it's necessary if you, if you really have hands-on experience. That's, that's the best education you could possibly have. One of your food heroes, um, you told me, was Julia Childs. I'm interested in this because was Julia very big in Canada? Um, Basically, when I first became interested in, in cooking, which sort of began, okay, so I have to explain a, a bit of background there. Um, we were a family of five, and my mother uh, decided when we were really quite young that we should all learn to cook. And so she made it an obligation for each one of us, one day a week, to come home early from school, well, at the end of school, I mean, uh, directly after school, to help prepare dinner. And that meant, you know, setting the table and putting out, uh, uh, doing all that side of it, but also, you know, learning to how to make a bechamel or peeling potatoes or peeling carrots. Uh, and in the process of doing that, we all learned um, the, the basics of cooking, which I think was in, an invaluable education. It's something that parents should do with their kids always. And my daughter and I um, cook together. Because also it's like, how do you get by in the world without knowing how to cook? Um, and then, um, there was bread making, there was just a lot of things. And I lived, I moved out and was living, uh, out in the woods actually 
with a friend with a wood stove um, at a, quite an early age. And that uh, was an opportunity to explore, you know, working with fire, cooking with fire. It's an amazing experience because you learn, uh, you know, you can't turn the gas up and down. It's not as exacting, but you can, you learn a lot from that. Anyway, um, yeah, no, then I, when I was 19, I spent three months um, looking after three children uh, with their parents who were yoga teachers, went off to an ashram and, sp and spent three months away. And so I was given the, the task of actually um, looking after these three kids and who were really good friends and close. And um, uh, Shirley had the complete uh, collection of Time Life cookbooks edited by Richard Olney, who um, I learned more about years later through uh, We Have Mutual Friends. But anyway, that's another story. But the Time Life series of cookbooks was fascinating. I was intrigued by, I mean, I, was, I just loved food. I mean, I was keen to taste things. And the culinary world of Victoria, as I was growing up in it, there, was some, there were lots of Chinese restaurants, and some of them were very, very good. Um, there were Indian restaurants. There, were, um, there was a Mexican restaurant, which I really liked. Um, it was pretty limited, but at the same time, there was a bit of variety. And then it, it became a fun thing to try and learn how to cook. You know, it was a challenge to learn to cook different things. So there were delicatessens that specialized in, in exotic uh, you know, ingredients, and one could obtain them. And my, when I was living with these three kids, I was able to, to um, spend a lot of time cooking because um, – those, the cookbooks were an inspiration. They were an opportunity to kind of explore things I wouldn't have time to do otherwise. And uh, I became very familiar with all the, um, the the specialty shops of the city and knew where I, knew where to find anything, pretty much. Well, because the reason why I asked that about Julia was that I was I would have thought maybe that the Canadians would have had other French people teaching them French rather than Julia Charles. Well, no, I'm, you have, no I mean uh, coming from a uh, entirely, the, the, the west coast of Canada is entirely Anglophone, so the the French influence isn't really there. But there's there's always been a kind of <clears throat> among English people, there's an enthusiasm, or to say, a sort of um, um, snobbism around what is French as being chic and wonderful and so on. Julia Child um, just was was a very, I mean, she her I I had a copy of. Um, what it's called, the French French cooking or whatever it's called. The, uh, yeah, the art of French cooking. The art of French cooking. I mean, yeah. which I, I got through, I belonged to a book of the month club. I could get really good deals and it's one of the books I bought. And um, it was just fun to go through that and see, you know, uh, discover what all these French recipes were and what they involved. So it was kind of an introduction to French cuisine. Although when you think about it, there's no such thing as French cuisine. There's a lot of different regional regions that, comprise what we identify as being French cuisine, but French cuisine as such does not really exist. So it's a misnomer, but there it is. Well, actually, so I was going to ask you, what's the biggest difference in French food that you were taught and knew from growing up being in Canada and that, that Julia Child influence to the food that you have here in France now? Well, that's a good question. I think... Um, the then, I mean, what was traditional, what she was based on is really, you know, Escoffier, uh, Augusto Escoffier, who is like the, the, he was like the, the basic, 
he was the cook for everyone. He was the inspiration for pretty well every French chef. Um, you know, lots of sauces, very rich foods, very um, lots of meat and stuff. I mean, um, the world has switched to a lot more vegetable, uh, things that are much lighter. Uh, there's still, it's an appreciation, but it's an aesthetic that goes with French cooking, which I think is really about, um, it's a lot to do with appearance, a lot to do with, um, you know, but then it's also about taste. I mean, uh, I think that what was classic, you know, French cuisine, which is pot au feu and boeuf bourguignon and uh, things of that kind, <clears throat> stews and uh, vent they're all, um, you know, they're great, but they're, they're sort of uh, passé in a way. Not very many people. I mean, apart from where you find these things regionally, um, they're not exactly celebrated in the same way anymore. No, and that's the fabulous thing about living here is you get to find all of these new things, uh, new dishes that well, aren't exactly new. They've been in those regions for a long time, but it just so happens that uh, they weren't uh, good enough, popular enough. I don't know what it was that they weren't included in, in these uh, books. But again, but then again, she can't, Julie couldn't write about everything. It took her five years to write that book. So, you know, it's like she couldn't put everything in there. Well, I mean, that's the problem with with um, uh, cookbooks is they they require that you you actually test the recipes. You need to make sure that what you're doing is um, is going to work, and that is a lot of work because you can test it once, test it twice, um, or you can be you know kind of just. Uh, I my favorite kinds of cookbooks, in fact, are those where there isn't so much a very specific uh, recipe with exact ingredients. But um, a, a whole story around a dish where that story actually recounts uh, the, the recipe in a sense. And uh, MFK Fisher is really good at this, uh, for example. There's so many wonderful uh, people who've written about food. I mean, it's just endless. And cookbooks are, are wonderful. They're good, they're good bedtime reading. Uh, Jeffrey, we will talk about the vineyards of Paris next. But before we do, I wanted to – you do tours of the, these vineyards and in Paris. What's your favourite thing about tours and being in the tourism business? Um, well, it's a lot of – I mean, it's a lot of things. I like – I do like people and I like um, sharing what I've learned, I suppose. It's a combination of, of um, uh, conviviality – uh, the business of actually, you know, meeting new people and, and then sharing experiences, which uh, are, I mean, what what better way to spend one's life than uh, tasting uh, fine wines and eating fabulous food? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Lovers of French food, wait no more, for I've got the French food cooking experience just for you. Come join me here in Montmorillon for one and three day cooking experiences that take in French markets as well as the visits to local food producers and lots of cooking and eating, of course, with the occasional glass of wine. But above all, good company and lots of fun. Book your class with me via andrewpryorfabulously.com, but hurry, places are filling up fast as were your stomachs. Well, on to today's topic, the vineyards of Paris. Most people would know of the vineyard at Montmartre. I know I certainly did. Um, but how many vineyards are there in Paris? There's not just the Montmartre one. 
Okay, this is an interesting story because I, uh, when I first, like you, I mean, I'm, and like most people, um, living in Paris, I knew that there was the, the vineyard of Montmartre, and I knew also, I'd seen a couple of others, but I didn't really know much about them. And it took a while before I started to take a real interest. And then when I started researching the subject, I was kind of astounded by um, just how extensive they are. Uh, or, ex or let's say how present the vine is in, in Paris. Because first of all, you need to know that um, the vineyards around Paris, the vineyards of Paris and the Paris region, were the largest in the world up until two centuries ago. And that's something that no one really knows. Very, very few people are aware of this. It's, it's a story that's just been eclipsed by um, the, the story of, of the, wine, the vines of, of France, you could say. But Paris itself, to this day, I mean, right now, has, I've, I mean, what is a vineyard? What constitutes a vineyard? Well, for me, it's basically any collection of vines. A collection of, you know, 12 or 10, whatever, vines can constitute a vineyard. And that is the smallest vineyard in Paris is exactly that, 12 vines. Um, and that's, that's Saint-Germain-des-Prés. There are, um, by my own, by my reckoning, there are 31 vineyards. Wow. Yes. And wow. 11 of those actually produce wine. So when were the first vineyards in Paris? First, okay, well, the first vineyards go back to the Romans. Uh, the Romans, the Romans were, um, as they moved north, well, there was actually, no, the Gauls uh, were actually producing wine, I think, prior to the, to the Romans. Um, but I don't know what, we don't have enough information really about that, at least I don't know enough about it. I just know that the vine was definitely propagated by the, the Romans because for the Roman army, uh, wine was an essential condiment. It was, it was part of the, um, uh, the daily rations of a soldier was to have, um, I don't know, a liter of wine or two liters of wine, whatever it was. So they needed uh, to, and it, it, of course, wine being liquid is um, it's heavy and it's it's kind of it's you know to transport it's difficult. So they just planted vineyards everywhere they went, and they would they would basically use the soldiers whose family had vineyards um, in Italy back home um, and those people would take over and, and plant vines so they brought cuttings with them they would plant travel and and plant vines and you know the vine flourished throughout france for that reason when we're talking about wines in paris though what's the region that we're talking about like is it paris is in like the the around the peripheric or is it the whole of paris what region no, are we talking about yeah no i'm just talking about within intramuros in other words as far as the peripheric within the peripheric the rings you know the circle that goes around the city um, which is a, you know it's a small area but that's that's the 31 vineyards outside of paris and if you take in the the whole of the region which is called the ile de france the island of france um it, which is you know it's a uh, one of the regions of, of, the, of the country. Uh, there are 200 vineyards altogether. Yeah. Amazing. I had no idea. Um, so is it, was it, or is it, or was it an important wine region of France? The, it was the largest. It was the biggest bloody vineyard in the world. That's my point. I mean, it was not just important. It was the largest vineyard in the entire world up until about, you know, two or three centuries ago. And the reason it declined, it went into decline for many reasons. Um, you could say the first was 
um, a drop in quality after the revolution. Um, all the vineyards that belonged to the aristocracy and, and the church were um, basically redistributed to the people that had been working them, the peasantry. And their, their goal was much less qualitative than it was quantitative. They were more interested in producing more. So um, some of the noble varieties were, play, were replaced by lesser uh, quality grape varietals that produced more. And so that was the first decline. After that, um, there was phylloxera, which basically was a, and for those who don't know what phylloxera is, it's a bug that eats vine, uh, the rootstocks of vines. And this came from the United States. And the reason that, I mean, been, there have been a lot of exchanges between the old and the new world, but up until the invention of the steamship, um, it took three weeks to sail across the Atlantic. With the steamship, it only took two. And so once the steamship was invented, um, that is basically what caused the, um, this, this devastation, which was, glo- I mean, the, the entire, uh, all of Europe was struck by phylloxera, struck down. And this was, a, it took them seven years to, to, to work out that the, uh, the solution, the problem was also the solution. In other words, all the, what they had to do is, was to import American rootstock and plant, uh, you know, noble varietals or the Euro- European varietals onto the, the European rootstock, which is what we have today. I mean, basically all the vineyards of, of France are pretty much all American rootstock. The wines that were grown in these Paris vineyards, were they a specific, like, variety? Did, or was it, you know, to that region? Or was there lots of different varieties of wines created? The grapes of, of, of um, the Ile-de-France, Predominantly white, and Fromental was, was one of the biggest uh, varietals. And Fromental is, a, is, a, is actually a cousin of Savagnin, not Sauvignon, but Savagnin, which comes from the Jura, um, because it's a it's fairly early ripening, and that was an advantage. But there was also Pinot Noir, there was Gamay, there was Sauvignon Blanc, there was Chardonnay, there was all the all the varietals that we know today. Plus, in fact, in a, um, the Abbey Saint-Victor, which is very close to where I'm was very close to where I'm, I, I live in, in Paris, um, which is right by Jussieu, you know, the, the Jardin des Plantes and Jussieu, the fifth arrondissement. Uh, the Abbey Saint-Victor had a vineyard called the Grenache. And this was considered one of the best vineyards of the city. And um, from all accounts, basically, it was planted to Grenache, which is um, normally a grape that, you know, is associated with the Rhone and the southern regions of France, requiring a certain amount of sun. But um, apparently they were able to make a, a, a rich red wine in Paris. Um, so, yeah. One of the smallest vineyards, you've mentioned it already, in Paris today, I've walked past this so many times and I had no idea. Um, the Square Laurence Proche, is that correct? Yeah, Laurent Proche. Which so is what's the, its history? Okay, well, that's... It's... Um, the square is, okay, is that, hang on a second, because they moved the vines. I mean, I was, I started taking people to visit um, the vineyards of Paris about six years ago, seven years ago. I forget how long it's been now. And um, I, you know, Saint-Germain-des-Prés was one of the first vineyards for me because it was by far the most important vineyard of the Middle Ages. And something that all, you know, in speaking of the Middle Ages, what people don't know is that Basically, it's wine that built Paris. It was the it was the economic driver. 
that actually um, fueled the economy in the Middle Ages. It's what built Paris. It's what built Gothic architecture. Well, in the Middle Ages, didn't you drink wine like you drank water? Like, wasn't it, the water wasn't great to drink, so you drank wine? Is that what water was? True, uh, but that would be the aristocracy and the clergy. Um, the abs, you know, the uh, the peasantry were were more. Uh, they were drinking beer. They were drinking perry. Uh, the reason that fermented uh, drinks were obviously they were cleaner because there was no. I mean, you're basically using. Um, well, the alcohol would kill bacteria. They were, the, the water would have been the purest and the cleanest imaginable, but uh, they didn't really understand hygiene and they weren't very good at um, keeping that water clean uh, because they would use it to, I mean, all waste materials ended up in rivers and so on, uh, which were the same sources from which people were getting their water. So that was, that was complicated. Um, so yeah, water was polluted and um, very often... Uh, water would be mixed with wine to kill bacteria and, and to, you know, clean it up a bit, as it were. But they weren't drinking it. I mean, um, Saint-Jean-des-Prés, for example, uh, there was a community of 600 people. Those 600 people would receive three liters of wine per person per day. A third of that wine would have been used for cooking, for making vinegars and sauces, and um, so used in... Uh, culinary ways. Another third would have been used for medicinal purposes, with uh, like for maceration, um, for, for making, basically extracting the active ingredients of plants through maceration, and for salves and so on, of cleaning wounds and so on. Wine was used for everything uh, for medicinal purposes. And then a third would be for drinking. So a liter of wine per person per day is still quite a lot, we think, but the wines were not as strong. They were probably seven, eight, nine degrees maybe 10 degrees alcohol, as opposed to 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 degrees today. So you could, you could and also everything one did uh, required effort. Um, so you would be metabolizing it uh, much more. But, you know, Saint-Germain-des-Prés, after everyone in that community receiving three liters of wine per person per day, they still had 2.8 million hectoliters or 280 million liters of wine to sell. That's a lot of money. When we talk about vineyards nowadays with Paris, there's only, is there only there's only one commercial one in the in the centre of Paris. Is that correct? That is correct. Even though the city of Paris actually produces five five wines, um, the Clos Montmartre is the best known, and all of the vineyards that I mean, all the uh, uh, the, the vineyards that are run by the city. The only one that actually um, you can buy, but you can, I mean, it's not that easy to find. It doesn't appear in, in wine shops or, or, or restaurants or anything. It's still very, very limited quantities. You can buy it in Montmartre, basically. Uh, is, you know, the Club Montmartre is the only one that you can buy. The others, which are, uh, there's um, Bercy, uh, the vineyards of Bercy, and then the Clos des Morillons, which is in the 15th arrondissement, um, Montmartre again. Then uh, the Clos Berger, which is near the Butte de Chaumont, and uh, Belleville, uh, the, the Clos des Envierges. These are the vine. These are the vineyards that are run by the city, and all of them produce. They're actually, I mean, all of them are very, very drinkable wines. I find them, you know, if if that was what one had to drink without um, a huge selection of other things, or if that's what one could afford, you'd be quite happy, I think. 
I was told by a Frenchman actually once that uh, the wine from Clos Montmartre wasn't that great, but now it is better. It's getting. Um, I mean, it's been a greater attention initially. Obviously, the, um, the the interest, for the most part, for these vineyards was not. It was there was no commercial uh, objective. There was no professional objective. It's more. It was a, a tie-in with um, the, the historical past of the city. It's, it's viticultural greatness is part of the thing. And I think there's also. It's a curious thing, but I've, there have been more and more vineyards planted in Paris in recent years. So that, I mean, in every year they've been planting, there seems to be a new vineyard cropping up somewhere. The most recent was in the Clos des Arènes, which is just behind where I live. And the Clos des Arènes was a, a famous vineyard that belonged to the Abbey Saint-Victor in the 12th century. So the, the, the Clos des Arènes lives again. And this is, I mean, this is fabulous. So there's people within the city who seem to have uh, you know, a fondness for the vine as well. Well, there were originally um, eight vineyards that belonged to the Abbe, uh, Abbe de Montmartre, uh, but they were they disappeared over the years. I mean, the, the reason the vineyard is where it is, that vineyard in Montmartre, was because um, there were the last vineyard of Montmartre, the actual last producing, you know, sort of commercially productive vineyard, was uh, related to a farm, the Ferme de Bray, which was. Uh, right by the where the Chateau de, de, de Brouillard is today, so really close to where the uh, there's a statue of Dalida up in Montmartre. Anyway, so the, um, that uh, vineyard disappeared because of I mean, it's like urban expansion and so on. I mean, the land um, became um, increasingly valuable, and what happened with I mean, the vineyard that is today there was in 1934. There was a group of, of people living in Montmartre who were incensed by the idea that there was going to be this um, a block of you know a block of flats or something another another cement block put in on this uh, empty lot. So there was a uh, an organization developed in Pulbo, who was an illustrator, um, kind of headed this campaign to to save this plot from being developed. And uh, when the city said, well, what do you want to do with it? They said, well, let's plant vines. And, uh, well, where are you going to get the vines? Well, they just had lots of friends because these were a group of artists. They just knew people. From so there were, there were 27 different grape varietals initially, which is nuts. Um, it makes it impossible to actually, for all of those varietals to arrive at maturity at the same time. So harvest would have been a complete nightmare. But uh, over the over the years, they've gradually it's become more and more um, coherent, you might say. And I think that there now there is a, um, a, a real interest in trying to make something of, of, uh, of quality. I mean, that's, that's good. And yeah, it's this, I mean, the, the, the woman who's actually the, the winemaker, Sylvia Naplat, makes uh, wines of all the wines of the city. In fact. She's yeah, vinifying all, all five. Yeah, the other vineyards that are actually... Wine producing are um, there's the Hôpital Bretonneau, which is also in the 18th. Uh, there's a, a small quantity of wine that's produced by a, uh, the the um, the fire brigade in the ninth arrondissement of the city. Um, there's a couple of schools. I mean, there's a lycée, the lycée um, um, uh, is it Paul Bert? I forget the name. Of it. I think it's Paul Bert. Um, 
which, you know, I mean, where else in the world would you find a high school that teaches uh, sommelierie, where you can learn the art of, of serving wine? And uh, they've actually planted their own vineyard because part of the study is actually understanding how wine is made. And so that school actually makes its own wine. And there was Clorivière uh, was the other, another one. And there's, uh, what's the other one? I'm just doing this off the top of my head and I can't remember everything at the moment. But there you are. You, you can see that there are um, a number of, of wine producers. It's always very, very small quantities. And, you know, the quality is, of course, pretty variable, you could say. It's not. Uh, yeah. Coming to France soon for a holiday or weekend away? Do you have plans or dreaming of it, but you just don't know what to do? Well, I can help you out with that. Jump on my website, andrewpryorfabulously.com, and check out my itinerary service. You can book in a 45-minute Zoom call with me directly. Then, once we've discussed what you want, how long you're coming for, and what you really want to do when you're here, then I'll create a personalised itinerary just for you. How fabulous would that be? Um, one of my favourite areas of Paris, uh, for other reasons, I know that a lot of uh, um, people, a lot of Americans, a lot of people, uh, tourists, love the Latin Quarter because it's sort of, you know, this old worldy part of Paris that, you know, has the mixture of the hotels and everything there as well, that people can stay and feel like they're in that old part of Paris. But one of the things I love about the Latin Quarter is it's these little hidden treasures that you find, and especially in the areas around it um it's you know it's always a place that whenever i go i always find something new and i'm intrigued to find that there are some hidden vineyards in the latin quarter is that right well there's first of all there's yes the jardin des plantes is the um was the first i mean there's always been a vineyard in the jardin des plantes the jardin des plantes is the second oldest park in europe and is the, the National Botanical Gardens and the Natural History Museum and the, and the zoo. And there's some, uh, kang- there's some wallabies there, not kangaroos. Yeah, wall- there, there are wallabies and kangaroos. Oh, right. They, okay. they introduced kangaroos a few months ago. Ah, good. Okay, because there were, there were some kangaroos outside of Paris. A whole, um, like they, they escaped a, a zoo in 1980-something. And uh, yes, and they've been living in the living out there for a while. It might be those kangaroos. Maybe they've rounded them up, perhaps. But anyway, they they now have they're they're across from the, the wallabies. But anyway, the, the Jardin des Plantes has always had a vineyard. In fact, the logo of the Jardin des Plantes includes um, a, a vine, um, so it's always been part of the story. And then most recently, as I just mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, was the Clos des Arènes which is, um, I'm between the two of them, and literally the, the, the Jardin des Plantes is across the road, practically from where I live, and the Arène de Lutesse is right behind, so I'm in between the two vineyards, which is obviously a very privileged place to be um, when you're organizing wine walks. Um, so when I, uh, that became an obvious, uh, an obvious walk to do. Uh, I love the, um, it's, it's the, it's like a coliseum there. It's, uh, I forget the name of it. You walk through a, like you walk through what you think is going to be the door to a, a, a Parisian housing building and you walk through there and then suddenly you're in a coliseum. Roman it's arena. One of my, that's it. Yeah. One of my favorite places to go. Les Arènes de Lutèce, the Roman arena. Is, is, that's where the Clos des Arènes is. 
the video. The amount of people that I have asked and they've never been on any trip that they've been to Paris, it's 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 like no, no, oh it's, my gosh, it's you incredible. Need to do this. It's a beautiful thing. It's a lovely little park, and um, I mean, as I say, I mean it's right behind me, so I get to go there all the time. In fact, I'm a member of the association of the Clos des Arènes, so I've actually participated in in the pruning of the vines. Wonderful. Um, well, I found a term on your website, and I want to know what it means. It's, uh, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, so you'll have to pronounce it correctly for me. I think it's ivresse. Ivresse. What is meant by the term ivresse? Oh, that's a wonderful word. I mean, the French, um, it, it's drunkenness, um, literally translated in how we tend to use it mostly. Uh, but the French term ivresse is a much broader idea. It's it's an it's it's um it's more more associated with the idea of a spiritual uplift or um, a kind of um, state of you know enthusiasm, perhaps related to it can be inspired by wine or by poetry or by virtue, as you will, according to the poem by uh, Charles Baudelaire, who wrote a poem called "Enivrez-vous, be drunken." And uh, so ivresse, how ivresse actually plays out in the minds of people, I think, is that it's um, when you're, I mean, real wine will, there's different kinds of drunkenness. I mean, we feel different effects from different things. And a real wine that's produced naturally, and which is organic or biodynamic, will give you a, a, se- a sense of well-being, a sense of, uh, it, it can give you an uplift. It's the only, there's a euphoria that comes, for example, with tasting um, vintage wines. And these are truly um, magical sometimes in, in, in how they can transform the spirit and how they can make you feel. And this is Ivresse. Um, there's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely idea. Drunkenness tends to sound a little bit brutish. And you know, when we think of drunkenness, we often think of abuse and how it's uh, you know, having uh, excess excessive consumption, whereas the, the term, the French term, ivresse, is not really about that. Um, it can be, obviously. You could be ivre mort, you could be you know, dead drunk, uh, but ivresse is kind of an exalted state. I love it. I'm, I'm going to use that all the time. Jeffrey, before we go, um, how can people find out more info about you and also book one of your tours? Very easily. I mean, there's a website, which is pariswinewalks.com. Uh, so Paris Wine Walks, uh, Paris with the hyphens between each la- each word, paris-wine-walks.com. Uh, um, that's probably the easiest way. Fabulous. Well, I'll put all the details in the show notes for this episode. Finally, the question that I ask everybody, Jeffrey, that's been on Fabulously Delicious, and that is, what is the most fabulous thing to you about France? About France? The most fabulous thing about France? Well, you know, I have been privileged in having been able to explore a lot of the country, traveling around the French countryside. I suppose that is what's inspired me. Um, you know, just discovering the, the scope and the variety of the French countryside, I suppose, is the thing that's been kind of um, um, an inspiration through, throughout. 
I mean, I still find great joy. I mean, it's, I'm happiest when I'm visiting vineyards, to be honest. So I'm, I'm thrilled when I get to go out into the, into the countryside. Because the French countryside has been well preserved, thankfully. And this is what makes, um, this is why France is, is the you know, sort of number one tourist destination in the world. Is it has these all these attractions? The French countryside is quite amazing. But probably, probably that. I mean, uh, and then the opportunity of you know discovering. There's just an endless uh, number of new wines coming out, and I'm thrilled by you know the young generation of producers who are all working naturally. It's a it's, it's a it's a very positive thing. Well, you've been an inspiration to us today, and uh, thank you so much for teaching us all about the Paris vineyards. I'm sure many people now uh, will come and uh, listen and want to go to back to Paris and explore them. I know I certainly do, so I will be booking a tour one day soon, and uh, um, probably in the new year when the weather gets a bit better, actually. Um, but uh, we will come and visit and explore the Paris vineyards with you. Jeffrey, thank you very much for being on Fabulously Delicious today. It was a pleasure, and I thank you for having me. Merci beaucoup. Okay. Bye-bye. How fabulous was that? Jeffrey is certainly a great storyteller, and also so much knowledge about wines of Paris. I can't wait to go on one of his tours the next time I'm in Paris. Thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast today. If you have any suggestions for future topics, know a fabulous, passionate French foodie that would be a great guest, or if you think you're the perfect guest, then please slide into my DMs. Want to chat all things French food? Then get in touch, as I love nothing better than talking France, French food, and so much more to people. So, subscribe so that you don't miss out on the next episode. Look me up on YouTube, cooking fabulously for some delicious recipes and traveling fabulously for some great France travel tips and recommendations. Or check out my website, andrewpriorfabulously.com for even more fabulous French things. My motto in life is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. So I hope that I've added just a little bit of fabulousness to your day. Merci beaucoup and bon app. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, nerds. book Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.